Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with him, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, And he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well, who had been sick. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him. And a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he, who was dead, sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? At that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitude concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. But John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children." Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This evening we come to the conclusion of Luke chapter 7. This is nearly the zenith of Christ public ministry, this is the high point, the time of some of Jesus' great miracles culminating in the raising of the dead, the raising of the widow's son in Nain. And this moment in time is summarized perfectly by Jesus himself in verses 22 and 23. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's the situation. 
And I think perhaps it may have been that last sentence that was ringing in the ear of this Pharisee named Simon. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. May possibly have been that he was challenged by that. Because soon after this, he invites Jesus over to his house for a meal. Now, even today, you don't just invite anyone over to your house. There are certain implications of doing that, and far more so back then. To eat with someone meant that you, in some way, were favorable for the, to them, that you were for them, you were connected with them. And this man was therefore taking a risk by inviting him. We're not insure, entirely sure of the chronology here, but at some point, probably around this time, we know that the Jews did what we read in John chapter 9. The Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was a Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. He was taking a risk. And at the very least, we know that they were saying things like what we read in this very chapter. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this man was taking a risk, inviting Jesus over to his house for a meal. And so much so, we might think, I suspect, that he thought he might have been doing something very commendable, and that Jesus should be thankful that he would deign to have him come over to his house. Of course, we know that's not the right summary of the situation. Simon, the Pharisee, was a sinner, just like any other sinner in need of salvation by Jesus Christ. The only problem is that he didn't seem to recognize that. He didn't seem to understand what his situation was. He didn't seem to recognize who Jesus really was. He was intrigued. He wondered if he was a prophet, but he wasn't so sure about that, and he certainly didn't recognize that he was the son of the living God. And therefore his love, or rather his lack thereof, is manifested in his lukewarm reception of Jesus into his house. It isn't much of a reception. And in great contrast, we have this woman, this sinner, whose actions demonstrate one who really did know who Jesus was, who really did know what her situation was as a sinner in need of grace, and one who we believe had received grace, and was therefore one who loved Jesus much, one who had received great grace and great forgiveness, and therefore she loved much. And that's the title of our sermon tonight, that great love comes from great forgiveness. And we have three points. First, Simon's deficient love. Second, the woman's great love. And third, the creditor's free forgiveness. So first, we see Simon's very deficient love. As we've mentioned, Simon's attitude towards Christ was certainly better than some by willing, being willing to invite Jesus over that he had done something more than the others who certainly wouldn't have done that. However, he must not have been all that convinced about Jesus because in verse 39 we read this. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were as prophet would know who and what manner this woman is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. He is uncertain. He is skeptical as to whether Jesus is even a prophet, let alone that he's a son of God. Now, he's not even doing what the people were doing in this chapter, because you remember what they say after the, he raises the widow of Nain's son from the dead, and the dead uh, sits up and begins to speak. What happens? The people 
Fear came upon them all. This is in verse 16. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. The people at least recognized that he was a great prophet. But this man's not so sure that he's even a prophet at all. He's skeptical about it. And so it seemed that he was more of an inquirer, a seeker, rather than a believer at that point. And although, more than that, although Simon did at least deign to have Jesus come to his, his house for a meal, apparently he didn't want to go too far in his show of support. He was cagey. He was hedging his bets a little bit. He, he, said, he, he hears perhaps, blessed is he who is not offended about me. This man is doing great miracles, so I'll have him over to my house, but let's not make too big of a deal. And so he's a little bit deficient in his hospitality. We know this because he failed to perform some of the expected elements of good Middle Eastern hospitality. When a guest arrived, there were some things that were expected of the the host. A good host, who was being hospitable, would see to it that the person first at least had something to wash their dirty feet. They're walking around in sandals in a very dirty place without pavement. They needed to wash their feet, so the host would make sure that happened. They would, uh, maybe they'd have a slave to wash their feet, but at the very least, they'd bring water so that the person could do it themselves. They would greet them physically, again, in the Eastern manner, a kiss, something akin, certainly, to physically greeting with a handshake, and they might provide some oil for their hair. Those were the elements of good hospitality. But Simon did none of these things. He invites the men over, but doesn't do any of these things. And Jesus points that out in verse 44. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. 45, you gave me no kiss. 46, you did not anoint my head with oil. Failure at every one of those expected points. And the question is, what what sort of signal is he sending? What kind of message is that? I think it's a message of one who wasn't certain and was hedging his bets and didn't want to go too overboard lest people really think he'd become a disciple of Jesus. Or believe too much. Of course, we know he didn't believe all that much. He was skeptical as to whether he was even a prophet. But I think beyond what kind of signal it's sending, the other question is what kind of love or lack thereof does that manifest? Think about how someone whom you love, how you greet them, someone who's very, very close to you. Imagine someone, you, you having that person, the person has arrived at your home and In winter, perhaps, and you don't greet them at the door, don't give them a handshake, you don't offer to take their coat, you don't offer them something to drink, you just kind of motion them over to sit down. What kind of message is that? Well, what kind of manifestation of love is that? It isn't. You are sending a clear signal that you don't really love that person very much. Now, that's in great contrast to the woman. And that's our second point, the woman's great love. This woman, who is she? Well, she's described in verse 37. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, that doesn't mean that most people are not sinners. And she was, there's, you know, maybe a thousand people in the city and that 999 of them were perfectly righteous and there was one sinner. We know that, of course, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And let me say, if you're here tonight, you are a sinner. I don't have to know you. I know that much. The Bible makes it very clear. You, if you are alive, if you are a person, you are a sinner. 
And that's why Simon says in verse 39, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus doesn't contradict it, by the way. Jesus says in verse 47, Her sins, which are many. That is something they could all agree on. This woman was, in fact, a sinner. Well, beyond that, what counts can we say about her? We can say that like Simon, she has heard about Jesus. And we're later going to consider the fact that she must have already heard about his teaching and she must have already believed in it as she was acting in this way. That's uh, interesting as we think of the situation that we have in, in Luke chapter 7. We say, first of all, the people recognize and should have recognized that a great prophet has arisen. He's able to heal the dead. Yes, that's a great prophet. But notice something else. When Jesus is summarizing the situation to send back to the disciples of John, what does he say? Besides all these great miracles that are happening, he says, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Maybe this woman is one of those to whom this is happening. We know there were there at that moment those who were sick who were walking around healthy, those who were dead who were walking around alive, those who were deaf who were walking around hearing, those who were blind who were walking around with, with their sight restored, and there were also those poor, those poor in spirit, who had heard the gospel and were rejoicing because of it. And I think this woman is one of those who had had the gospel of free forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, put her faith in him and was therefore forgiven. Now, she wants, she has, like, like Simon, heard about Jesus, that Jesus is going to be in this place, and she wants to do something for him. Now, in her situation, unlike Simon, she doesn't have all that much, but what she does have, she is more than willing to spend. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And I recall in our time in the Gospel of John, as I explained just how expensive this alabaster flask of fragrant oil must have been. We think of oil and it's no big deal, but I think a better analog to that is imagine the, the most expensive perfume that you can buy in the store that's about this big. And then imagine buying enough of that to fill some giant thing this, this big. That's more like it. A year's wages or more that would be necessary for such a thing. This was her, her life savings. This was her, her safety net. This was her only valuable possession, as best we could tell. And stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with her fragrant oil. Now, by the way, she is, she is responding to a natural need, you see. Because as you remember, if Jesus was walking around in that situation, his feet must have been dirty. And the host should have done something about that, but the host didn't. The host didn't care, didn't love him. 
And so there Jesus was eating with his dirty feet. This woman noticed that particular need and was willing to do something about it. In fact, she did these things that are described, the most personal and most loving and most humble way imaginable that she was going to provide for this need. But I would say this as well, that this was an extravagant expression of love. I've said how much that this, uh, this alabaster flask of ointment must have been. I, I think of my own situation. Maybe you can think of yours and you think about what, what it would be, what sort of situation it would take for you to spend your, your life savings on something. It's not easy for someone, of course, we recognize that she received this money anyways, uh, doing, probably doing something disreputable. We're not entirely certain. It doesn't, doesn't exactly specify in what way she was a sinner. But in any situation, she didn't have a lot. And for her then to spend such an enormous amount of wealth in a seemingly wasteful way is truly extravagant. That is the definition of extravagance. Now, if she had done it on herself, if she'd spend all this on herself, we'd call that rightly prodigal. That's what the prodigal son did. He received all of his great money. He went off to a far country and he spent it all in prodigal living on himself. But this woman, this woman spent it all on Jesus Christ. That's not being prodigal. That's being extravagant in your love. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus Christ had something very precious, didn't he? It wasn't an alabaster flask of of precious oil. It was something even more precious than that. We know how much this woman's fragrant oil must have cost. It was extremely expensive. And she was willing to spend it. Jesus had something else. He had his own precious blood which he was willing to spend, which he was willing to have shed and poured out for wretched sinners like you. I can understand. I can understand why this woman might be willing to spend that which was so expensive, almost but not quite priceless, on the Son of God, the creator of the universe, her own Savior, It's a little bit harder for me to understand why Christ would shed his blood for a sinner like me. To wash, indeed, my feet. To wash me entirely in his shed blood. Well, getting back to the story, at this point we need a little bit of an explanation, don't we, between these radically different ways in which they interacted with Jesus, these radically different responses to him. What explains their differing lack of love or, or their, their display of love or lack thereof? Well, Jesus himself helps us to understand that with a little parable. We move on to our third point, the creditor's free forgiveness. It says in verse 41, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. So let's just go through what the elements of this particular parable. The first one, who is this certain creditor? 
It has to be Jesus, right? Of course it is. And who are the two debtors? Well, again, it has to be Simon on the one hand and the woman on the other. But this is very interesting that Simon is included in this number of the debtors. It's significant because, of course, Simon had assumed the part of the benefactor, of the creditor. He's the one who has graciously condescended to invite Jesus to come to his house. And Jesus is not received as an honored guest, of which he's amazed. And what a contrast, by the way, even with the centurion, this Gentile, earlier on in, in the, the chapter. The, the, the centurion, who is indeed a great man, with much authority given to him, says, I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. And here this man who should have known better, who should have known more than the centurion who Jesus was. He he was a Pharisee. He should have known the law and all the messianic prophecies and all the way that Jesus had fulfilled them, that John the Baptist had had explained this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He should have known all those things. And instead, he doesn't even bother to greet him. He doesn't do the basic elements of hospitality. He just presumes probably the opposite. Not only is he, he worthy for Jesus to come into his roof, Jesus should be glad of it. Well, that's not quite the case. In, as Jesus sets things right and tells, tells it like it really is, that there's one creditor, and that's Jesus, and there are more than one debtor. And in fact, this man, Simon, is on the same level as the prostitute. They both have this in common, that they are debtors, They are sinners. They owe something to Jesus. Now, one of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, these are obviously different amounts. One is 10 times the other, but they're both substantial sums. If we take a denarii to be something like a day's wages, we're talking about in the case of one, something over a year's wages, and the other one over a month's. Different amounts. They're both substantial. But most importantly, crucially, what it says next, they had nothing with which to repay. That's the, that's the main thing. It, so it doesn't really matter that one might owe ten times more than the other one. They could owe a hundred times. They could owe a thousand times. But they're both in the exact same situation with regard to their ability to repay, of which it is zero. They don't have anything to repay. It's not as if they have 10 10 denarii apiece, and so one of them is a lot closer than the other to be able to repay it. They've got zero, nothing. They have no means to repay at all. They have nothing. And I want us to understand that this is certainly our situation as sinners. Some of us are greater sinners than others. Some of us are more infamous for our sins. But let me tell you, if we were ten times better than we are, if if we were ten times more holy, a hundred times more holy, we could not begin to repay the debt that we have. If we lived a completely perfect life every moment of our lives until we died, from this moment on, that would merely mean that we had incurred no further debt. We couldn't do a single thing to pay off what we have already incurred. We have nothing by which we could possibly repay a holy God. They had nothing with which to repay. 
Now here's the thing. When they had nothing with which to repay, he, that is the creditor, freely forgave them both. And again, this is Jesus. Freely forgave them both. And he, the thing is, he didn't spot them a certain percentage of their debt to help them along the way. He didn't give them a certain amount. And therefore, if one was a little bit closer to being paid off than the other, then, then that would, help, that would uh, you know, therefore one is more likely to be able to pay it off. It is both, it is a complete and free wiping out of the debt entirely. And so once again, they're both in the same situation. They came both as debtors in the same category. And they have nothing with which to repay. They're in the same category there. And now, in the mercy and grace of the creditor, they are both in the same situation at the end. They are both freely forgiven. There's one way in which they're going to be different. One way in which they're going to be different. And that is a question that he didn't ask. Which of them do you suppose is going to love more? That's a good question, isn't it? Which of them is going to love them more? Now, I want to say this. I have been speaking as if this was really the case. But I think that, that one owes 50 and the other 500. But we're not very sure of that. It could very well have been that Jesus is just saying, if that was the case, if it really was the case, that one of you owed, if you owed only one-tenth of what she did, then what would be the situation there? Right? Because that's very often the way parables work. The thing is, is the consciousness of this sin and the consciousness of being forgiven of that. That's the issue. And that's the way I think that we understand verse 47. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said, your sins are forgiven. Now you could take that as, as works righteousness. And that's thankfully what we have the rest of the Bible to, to help us with. We could take it, okay, so if I love Jesus that much, then I'll be forgiven. But that's not what it means. Scripture uh, helps us, it interprets Scripture, and clearer passages tell us it is only by grace that we are saved. It is by grace and through faith in Christ that we're saved. It is nothing to do with our works. And love is a work. So it's not that. But if you follow the logic of what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, this is evidence. What you see in front of you, what she has just done is evidence of her consciousness of having been forgiven of an enormous debt. You want to know why she's acting like this way? I can tell you. Because she's been forgiven of a great debt and she knows it. And that's why she loves me so much. And that's why she's expressing it in this way. Calvin says this, the argument which Christ employs was taken not from the cause, meaning not this isn't the reason why she's being forgiven because of her great love, but from the effect. In a word, Christ argues from the fruit or the effects of follow it that this woman has been reconciled to God. That's what he's saying. This is a manifestation of the fact that she heard what Jesus was preaching, heard the gospel that was preached to the poor and received it in faith. And now what she was doing was a manifestation of her love, a manifestation of a love that was very conscious. He had been forgiven a debt that she could never, ever repay. And so she loves much. Well, I think that's how we are supposed to understand these things in Luke 7. How do we apply them to ourselves? The first and obvious thing is to receive this free forgiveness. See, the wonderful thing is it's not just back then 
Well, you know, what is the situation now? Uh, we have ministers preaching the word of God. We had Sebastian this morning. Now you have myself. Are we healing people physically? Are we physically making people to, to see who are, are blind and deaf to hear? Are we physically raising people from the dead? No, that, that is different. That was for a time and a season in which the Son of God manifested who he was, proved who he was through these miracles. But one thing is the same, I think, I hope. And that is that the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's mentioned last because I think it's the most important. You see, and that's the, that's the mission given to the church. That is a mission given to the church until Jesus Christ returns. We having this gospel, standing on the gospel that has, been, that has been demonstrated and proven by these miracles and the settled canon of scripture, we yet preach the gospel to the poor. And I would urge you to receive it. The offer is given to you. Receive this free forgiveness in Christ, just like the woman did. Now, look, if you're like Simon the Pharisee, you probably won't. Because you're thinking to yourself, I, I owe 50 pence, maybe. And uh, I'm not even sure about this Jesus, if he can do it for me. I'm not so sure that he is the only Savior. I'm not so sure that maybe there's not another way for me to do this. Maybe there is a way for me to pay it off. It does, it's not much of a debt. But you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself just like Simon. Your debt is beyond your ability to repay. You have nothing. Not now, not ever. And there is one means, there is one name given under heaven by which you may be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. And it is only by faith in him that you can be saved. And let me say, by the way, it is this credit. He says he freely forgave them. That is a situation that we have when we come to the gospel. It is not that, that you get a down payment of half of your sins forgiven now up front. And if you serve sufficiently, then you have the rest of them forgiven at some later time. It's a free forgiveness because Christ's grace is that free. The wonderful picture that we have, you remember, in Revelation 21. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. There's no charge. It's a free gift. Receive it in faith. And secondly, I'd say that we should not forget what we've been forgiven of. You know, people sometimes say, and in a sense it's very true, that God has forgotten our sins. Now, we cannot possibly say that Jesus doesn't know about them. We cannot possibly say that the omniscient God doesn't, it has a, a, a lack, a deficiency in his knowledge of things. He's perfectly omniscient. But he does say in Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And what that means is that our sin plays no ongoing role in the way that God deals with his people. He has, when he beholds us, when he thinks of us, when he regards us in that sense, he sees us as clothed in Christ's righteousness. And in that sense, maybe we can say, rightly, that God has forgotten our sins. They play no role in the way that he interacts. He's not going to try to extract them from us. He's not going to condemn us for them. When, we, when judgment day comes, there is now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have his righteousness. But 
even if then, and because God has forgotten about them, maybe we should remember them. Maybe we should. Maybe we should bring them to mind. Not to be hopelessly morbid, not to take away of our assurance of salvation that we have so free, that is the whole point, but to remind ourselves of what we've been forgiven of. Because the last thing that a child of God would want to be is like Simon, heartless and cold and deficient in our love. And what Jesus is telling us, it's a very simple principle, that inasmuch as you are conscious of being forgiven of something great, that is the measure by which you're going to love. And even if objectively we know, or and times past have known that we have some infinite debt of which we have now been forgiven of, that doesn't mean that it, it plays a right sort of ongoing mindfulness of that. And it needs to. We need to be very mindful of what we've been forgiven in order that we'd love him. That's the thing. Paul was, you know, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.12, And I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. That's the thing. He doesn't say, uh, although, although uh, well, I, I don't know what I was because it doesn't matter. I've been forgiven. No, he's mindful of it. He's mindful that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man because he thanks Jesus Christ. He has something to thankful for, to thank him for. He has something to love him for. And we should remember those things. We should remember them. I'd say this also, we probably ought to give generously. If we're going to be mindful of what we've been forgiven, if we have received this free forgiveness and we know it, we have received forgiveness for something we could not have possibly paid off, then what are we going to do? What is, what is the manifestation of that? I, I suppose that we ought to give, as a woman had done. The interesting thing to me is that Jesus does not say to the woman as she's doing this, pouring out the alabaster flask, what are you doing? You can't earn your salvation by your generosity, by your love, by your service, so stop doing it. No, actually, he commended her, just like he did in Matthew 26, 8. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, No, you know, you have to admit, they have a point. Maybe. Maybe. If we were doing some kind of crass calculation and just working on human logic, they might have had a point. But here's what Jesus said. Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a good work, a beautiful thing for me. You will have the poor with you always, but you do not have me always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman has, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. She was commended in the highest possible terms. And Jesus' prophecy and promise has come true. Wherever this gospel is preached, she is reminded. She is brought to remembrance of these things. For an example, that we might emulate. Give generously. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Again, that situation is not the same for us physically. It is spiritually. 
And what it says is this, freely you have received, so freely give. That's the thing. If you have it, it was given to you as a gift. If you have it, it's eligible to be used as a gift. And the measure, the principle, the manner in which you received it is going to be the measure and the manner in which you then give it. And the question is, how did you receive it? Was it grudgingly? Was it sparingly? Or was it freely and extravagantly? So we ought to give. And then lastly, and particularly, in our love for one another, in our love for Christ, that's actually manifested in the Lord's Supper. As you know, the Lord's Supper is an expression of our love and our thanksgiving for Jesus Christ. Jude refers to the Lord's Supper as a love feast, and so it is. It is very much an expression of our love for Christ and indeed for one another. And that is the manner in which it should be received. Don't be like Simon. If you intend to have table fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, then let it not be a lukewarm reception, a half-hearted reception. Let it not be with doubts and with skepticism. Let it not be with self-righteousness, but as humble sinners in fervent love, having come to Christ in faith, conscious of the sins, knowing the forgiveness that you have received in fervent love. And so rather be like the woman, this sinner. Come, she came. Boldly she came. Come boldly to this table. She was confident in the grace to be found in Christ, knowing her forgiveness, not in self-confidence, but in supreme confidence in the grace of God that had abounded to her and maybe to you as well. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a Savior he is to receive sinners such as ourselves who are not worthy to come, not worthy to come to him. But Lord, we are thankful that he is willing to come. Indeed, he is willing to be received by the very worst of sinners. And Lord, we know that our debt is inestimable. That it is not 50, it is not 500, it is infinite. And we have nothing to repay it. But Lord, Christ has done it all. His work is sufficient. His blood is more than enough. And we are thankful that we have received forgiveness in Christ. And how we pray, Lord, that you would therefore enable us to rightly receive this sacrament of Lord's Supper. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.